Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. And what's so frustrating about all this, all these things I just laid out, most Democrats and Republicans agree. Immigration and, and having, you know, being able to have operational control of our border, meaning we know everything that's coming back and forth, and streamlining legal immigration, 70% of Democratic primary voters agree with this. And 70% of Republican voters agree with this. However, it goes back to what we first talked about, and that is politicians on both sides would rather use this issue as a political bludgeon against each other rather than a problem to solve and go into an election and be like, hey, look at us. We solved this problem. Will Hurd is a former CIA officer, former United States congressman from Texas, former member of the House Intelligence Committee, and the author of the new book, American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things Done. Will and I just caught up to talk about his new book. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Will, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It's great to 
have you on the show again. And it's just plain good to uh, talk with you. Man, it's a pleasure as always to be with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So, Will, you've just published a great new book. It's called American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things Done. So congratulations on that. I know that writing a book is not easy, so congrats. Thank you. Look, I want to start with a question that I think gets to the heart of the first two sections of your book. And here's the question. I've had politicians on the show before from both sides of the aisle. And almost every time that I've done that, I've gotten pushback from my listeners. And what they say to me, if I could sum it up, is I'm done with politicians. I'm done with partisanship. I'm done with politics being about scoring points, you know, from both Democrats and Republicans. So how do you respond to that critique that I get when, when I have politicians on the show? Well, I, I would agree with the people that are, that, are, that are critiquing you first. You know, look, here's what happens. Right now, 72% of the country thinks the country's on the wrong track. And part of that, and, and that's been growing for, for some time. And there is a lack of trust amongst the American public with a number of our institutions, primarily our politicians. What is driving that lack of trust is what I would say is ideological inconsistency, where people and, and, and this, this this applies to to both parties, that they, you know, people don't act the same way when their person's in power or the other person's in power. Right. And and so I think that's part of the frustration. Most and, and, and look, this is how you in the last 30 years, this is how you win a campaign. You create contrast. So if you win campaigns by creating contrast between you and your opponent, what are you always doing? Creating contrast. So I, I would bet that some of the people that you might not get pushed back on are people that are actual real problem solvers, that are talking about real issues, that are not just relying on tired talking points from either side. And in essence, it is the country is ready for people to solve real problems, not just complain about them. And this is what the first couple of sections of your book are about. And, you know, talk about that a little bit. Sure. My thesis is simple. There's a number of generational defining challenges that the country is is currently faced with, will be faced with. And in order to solve them, we have to get beyond our, our politics and where our politics are now and that our politics is gumming up the system. Now, I'm a Republican, so I talk about how to improve the Republican Party and that the Republican Party needs to look more like America. And everybody should care about this, not just Republicans. Democrats should care. Independents should care. People that don't vote should care. Because in order to solve these generational defining challenges, we need a true competition of ideas between both parties. And then I also talk about how on national leadership – more of our national leaders are interested in fear-mongering rather than inspiring. And so I try to give some examples of how your actions is going to be based on your values, your audio and your video must match, meaning the things you do need to be reflected in the things you say. That also leads to this, this trust deficit that the public has with, with our elected officials. And, and I go through, I, I explain some stories and from my experiences um, whether it was in when I was in the CIA as a as a case officer or representing a truly swing district, 
that was along the Texas-Mexico border about how I was able to transcend some of those things and how a black Republican could win in a 71% Latino district. And, and I was only able to win because I solved problems and I got rewarded by independents and Democrats for actually being a problem solver, not just a bomb thrower. So, Will, you, in your book, focus on the Republican Party, but I'm wondering, and I'm not you know, looking for a critique of the Democrats here, but do they need to do the same thing? You know, do they need to move to a place there where they're more representative of, of the folks who look to them? 100%. And the only case you need to know that undergirds my answer is the, the upcoming 2022 election. I say there was two lessons from the 2020 election. Don't be a jerk and don't be a socialist. Unfortunately, Republicans try to be bigger jerks and Democrats try to be bigger socialists. In 2022, and this is not me getting political, most pundits and, and Democratic pundits would say the same thing. I think even um, President Obama alluded to this when he was most recently at the White House. The House, Democrats are going to lose the House in 22. Most prognosticators would say that momentum is on the Republican side to take the Senate back. Why is that? Now, the lesson Republicans are going to take away from the 2022 election is that the country loves us. No, that's not the lesson. The lesson is that the American public does not like where the Democratic Party is trying to take the country. It's not about they're not doing enough. It's that they don't like the things that they are doing. And so that the fact that you're going to see significant losses in the House in 2022 by Democrats is something that they should be rethinking. Let's just look in, in an area that I know, South and West Texas. There are five members of the House that are along the Texas-Mexico border. I was the only Republican of those five when I was in. My replacement is still the only Republican along the border. Most likely after this next election, three of the five Texas border Congress people will be Republicans, potentially a fourth. That's huge. And that is going to be fueled by Latinos on the border voting for Republicans. And so I think that should be a wake-up call for the Democratic Party to say, hey, are we reflecting and the things that we say and do where the majority of the country is? And my, my answer is that it's, it's no, but just like Republicans have a hard time learning lessons from elections, I think Democrats um, do the same thing. So this, this concept of fear-mongering versus inspiring in terms of leadership, you know, I think that's right on. You can't run an organization, right, through fear-mongering. You have to inspire. The same is true of a country with certainty. And I'm wondering, Will, if you look back in American history, if you would pick a Republican who you think led through inspiring and a Democrat who you think led through inspiring. The historical example on Democratic side is probably FDR, and on the Republican side is, is Ronald Reagan. I would go back to, in recent history, George W. Bush. I always talk about how that moment after 9-11 when he was in New York and he says, I hear you, right, and the rest of the world right. will hear you. I, like that. I think that's an example. I think President Obama got elected because of his message of hope, and that was trying to inspire people. So I, I think those are, are good examples. But the problem that we have is over the last 30 years, most political prognosticators think the best way to get anything done is when you have one party control, meaning the same party controls the Senate, the House, and the White House. 
That's actually the worst way to govern. When you think of any pieces of legislation that we remember, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Clean Water Act, the Every Student Succeeds Act, the First Step Act, like all these things that we know as legislation that have, that have held the test of time, they were all done when different parties held the House and the Senate and the White House. So that's where we have to get back to. You can see how this is complicating our foreign policy as well, too. This notion that everything can be done by executive order is also a bad idea. And so whether it is the back and forth on the Paris Accord or on the Iran deal or even you know policy in Ukraine, when you're not working with a fundamental consensus because – the executive branch has a hard time working with the other party, then you're going to have this inconsistency within our foreign policy, and that impacts our allies. Our allies don't know what's going on. Our enemies don't know what we're doing or potentially up to and can and potentially take advantage of that. So this concept that you can do things with only your own people, you know, history tells us that's the, the worst way to govern. So, Will, the third section of your book is where you really get into ideas on on how to solve a set of really hard domestic problems. And you throw global warming into that section as well. And I just want to want to ask about a couple of the issues you raised there, but I want to make something crystal clear to my listeners. You know, we we focus on national security issues on this podcast, but the most important determinant and will I think you would agree with me here, the most important determinant of a country's national security is the health of its economy and the health of its society. And without a healthy economy and society, there is no U.S. leadership role in the world. There is no ability to spend the resources to protect ourselves. There is no national security. So the reason to talk about these domestic issues on intelligence matters is that at the end of the day, they matter to national security. So I have a strong belief in that. I just wonder if you want to comment on it before we move on here. Look, I agree 100%, Michael. Like we've been able to we've been able to become a superpower because our economy became the most important economy in the world. And that happened because we were able to build trade alliances, you know, helping to have 72 years of peace and prosperity in in Europe allowed the US and European economies to represent half of global GDP and so so you're absolutely right and and that's why when we can't get our own house in order there's consequences overseas and and that is I I couldn't agree more with your precept and that's actually because of the strength of our economy gives us the foundation for not just our hard power but our soft power and being able to export our culture and taste and preferences all over the world. Absolutely. So, Will, you start your third section with a piece called Keep the Baby, Get Rid of the Bathwater. And I want you to talk about that, but let me preface this by saying that I spend a lot of time on college campuses talking with students, and capitalism is not a popular, is not a popular thing. It has a bad rep. The word is almost spoken with disdain. So talk about that. Keep the baby, but get rid of the bathwater. Yeah, and the premise is that the way to solve our current problems is not getting rid of the existing system that has gotten us here, which is democratic capitalism. And that, yes, there are people that have not benefited from our system. 
And the way you solve that problem is to give special attention to those people that aren't benefiting, not changing the entire system wholesale. And 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 also when people talk about the the what are the alternatives, and, and it would be a growing sense of, of democratic socialism. And look, democratic socialism is about factors of production being controlled by by workers or a collective. Okay, and it's funny that system has been tried a little bit over a dozen times, near almost two dozen times around the world, and it's never worked. It's never it's been never success- worked. It's never been successful, right? So one, we have to make the case why it's so important. Two, we also have to make the case that people that aren't helping benefit, and 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 how do you do that? I think it starts with addressing income inequality. We have income inequality because we have education inequality. And the best way to help and ensure that people are able to move up the economic ladder their entire life is to eliminate education inequality. I also think our systems need to be based on empowering people, not empowering the government. I want individuals to make decisions on what kind of health care they go and where they go to get that health care. I want individuals to decide what kind of business they're able to create and how and who, what kind of employees that they hire. I, I want individuals to decide where their kids should go to school and the, and the kinds of things that their kids do into their future. And so that has what's powered the most important economy. But when those that haven't benefited, we help. And, and I give some examples in the book of the times that the way I learned how to, how to solve problems is solve a problem for a particular individual. And there was a young lady that was in my district. She had MS, the the neuromuscular disease, and she needed a certain kind of wheelchair. And she and, and Medicare refused to reimburse that kind of wheelchair. And she came to us, and and we looked into it, and we were able to fix the problem for her. And then guess what? Because we fixed it for her, we figured out how to fix it for hundreds of thousands of people. And so to me, it's about finding those individuals that are not benefiting from the system, understanding why that person's not benefiting for it, and then solving it for an individual. And when you're able to solve it for an individual, you're going to be able to solve it for everybody else that has that same problem. So I don't want to take a deep dive here into political philosophy, but I do want to ask you a question. So what you just espoused, right, the individual is responsible that's where we should put the responsibility, that's where we should put the control, right, is in contrast to a more liberal view, which is the government should be making those decisions. What do you think it's at at the root of that fundamental difference in political philosophy? Well, I I think it it is a view of some utopian society, right? And that I think the difference is that people are you know, are going to uh, operate in their best selves, you know, in some, you know, e- e- egalitarian ideals where capitalism and democracy is based on the reality that people are going to do ultimately what's in their best interest. And I think it's ultimately, it's that simple. And I also believe that we fail to understand how fragile our systems are. Um, democracy is fragile. And, you know, we call the American government an experiment. We call it an experiment because when we started it, nobody thought it was going to work. We were the only ones trying to do it. It wasn't, wasn't until 60 years later that Switzerland was a democracy. There's only 14 countries that have been a democracy for more than 100 years. 
but for us, we think this is the only, there can't be anything else and that other things haven't been tried. Well, they have been tried and they have failed. And this is the system that has, has endured and produced the best quality outcomes. You know, I would also mention, this is something I talk to kids about all the time, right? When they're talking to me about capitalism is when China switched from straight socialism to capitalism is when hundreds of millions of Chinese were pulled out of poverty. Capitalism did that, right? Not Chinese socialism. Absolutely. And it's China's former government that is interning their ethnic minorities in concentration camps and using their data to try to control them, right? Like, like you know, concentration of power in the hands of the few is never a good thing because that power ultimately gets abused. Well, let me ask you about two other issues in the in the domestic section. One is immigration. This is really important. It's the longest chapter in the book, and it's the one that probably frustrates me the most. You know, I, I think I was the only member of Congress to have ever stamped visas. Um, that was my my day job, and then I did my real job at night when I was uh, back in the government and. Um, I was also responsible for going across. I may or may not have a crisscross borders in <laughs> aliens, right? And so at the end of the day, immigration and border security are connected. And the crisis that we're seeing at the border right now is the worst it's ever been. And one of the ways that we should be addressing this crisis, not only is it don't treat everybody like an asylum seeker and dismantling the infrastructure that is used to move people. DHS is projecting potentially up to 400,000 people a month coming across our border illegally. It's hard to get from Tegucigalpa to Eagle Pass, okay? And there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be dismantled. So, so you need to do all those things. And we should also be streamlining legal immigration. Every industry needs workers. In this day and age, we should be sophisticated enough to be able to add worker visas, whether Texas needs hospitality and Florida needs agriculture and um, California needs stevedores, right? We should be able to adjust um, worker visas to be able to do that. Also, if the Chinese government is going to steal our technology and our intellectual property, let's steal their engineers. Let's make sure if some kid from, from China is getting a PhD in data analytics at Texas A&M University, that when they graduate, that they're going to come work for a great American business or start a company here, not go back to, to China. And so all of these things can be done at the same time. And oh, and by the way, when we're dealing with inflation and concerns of a recession, it's good to add more people to the taxpayer's base. And so that's another thing that why streamlining legal immigration and benefiting from what I, I talk about, how we benefited from the brain gain of every other country. Let's continue that. And what's so frustrating about all this, all these things I just laid out, most Democrats and Republicans agree. Immigration and, and having, you know, being able to have operational control of our border, meaning we know everything that's coming back and forth, and streamlining legal immigration. 70% of Democratic primary voters agree with this, and 70% of Republican voters agree with this. However, it goes back to what we first talked about, and that is politicians on both sides would rather use this issue as a political bludgeon against each other rather than a problem to solve and go into an election and be like, hey, look at us, we solved this problem. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Will Hurd. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. We're talking with former CIA officer and former member of Congress, Will Hurd, about his new book, American Reboot. Well, you just said something that's really important, right, is, is the things you talk about in the first two sections have to get fixed before you can fix what's the many issues you, you lay out in the third section of the book, right? And then it flows eventually to our role in the world. But there's a step-by-step process here in terms of what has to happen in order to get the reboot you're talking about. Let me ask you about your approach to global warming. I think we, we need to reframe the conversation a little bit. And what I mean that? This is not about us preventing us hurting the earth. Mother Nature is undefeated. Right? There have been five extinction events, and we're beginning a sixth extinction event. This is about preventing Mother Earth from doing something to hurt us and to wipe us, wipe humans off of the planet. And, and so this is about protecting ourselves. You know, I try to talk in conservative circles that way uh, to get people to understand the importance of this. And look, this is... And you don't sound like a Republican talking right now, right? Here's what's fascinating to me. You talk about when you're on college campuses, Yeah. you talk to any Republican under the age of 35, if you're wrong on this issue, they're not going to listen to you. And Interesting. So young conservatives are equally focused on this on this particular issue. And again, it's complicated. There is, I, I think the number, uh, I go into this in the book, there are still people that don't have power. There are people that don't have clean water to have food, right? Like getting to, to net zero emissions is going to mean we're going to have to still rely on some hydrocarbons as we evolve. We're going to have to have a strategy to deal with nuclear. There is, we're going to have to have investments in technologies that are better at carbon capture, all of these things are, are complicated, and it requires to have a serious conversation. And, and we should have a debate between Republicans and Democrats on what the best way to align regulatory incentives, tax incentives, in order to achieve some of these, in order to get to these tools that are going to help make sure that we prevent a sixth extinction event from happening on Earth. And my fear, though, is some of the callousness that I think was met with a significant loss of life during COVID is an indication of how the death and destruction we're going to see from climate change is going to happen over time. It's going to happen in communities that actually weren't, you know, probably the least people involved in contributing to global warming. Sure. And so this notion where people finally get scared and it's in their face, we might be already past the point of no return when the majority of the communities recognize that. And you're right back, I think, to leadership, right? And recognizing what needs to change and inspiring the nation behind you, Right. You're right back to that first section of your book. Well, all these things are all these things are interconnected. Absolutely, absolutely. So I want to uh, move on to the 
next section of the book, but I want folks to know that I, I skipped over some extremely important issues, uh, domestic issues that you write about, Will. Most importantly, you go deep on healthcare, which is incredibly important, and you go deep on education, which you've already just briefly talked about, but you go deep on. Folks can read the book and read about those issues and how you think about them. The fourth section of the book is about the U.S. role in the world. So how would you highlight the key points in that section? Here's what I've learned in my 21 years associated with the national security community. And it boils down to a simple philosophy. Your friends should love you and your enemies should fear you. And that requires knowing exactly who your friends are and who your enemies are. You You have to be clear about that and recognizing that our hard power is based on our soft power and our soft power is based on our values. And and so America's role in the world, we have benefited from a international order that we have supported with our soft and our hard power that has led to economic growth in the United States and has helped improve quality of life around the world. And so this notion that foreign policy, I always tell people foreign policy is not foreign. It's always easier to solve problems before they hit our shores. And, and it's always better to have a posse. It's good to have friends. This is what makes us unique because the, and, and, and Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Chinese government and the Russian government, they don't have allies. They right. have satellites. And we're able to build alliances and friends. And, and so, so that's how I would boil things down. And you and I have had debates on, on Ukraine, but when I, when I use this frame for Ukraine, when President Zelensky is asking for us to do more and provide more equipment, um, that's a sign that your friends aren't really in love with you. Now, I think we, we've given a lot and we've, we've supported a lot. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, negate any of that. I'm of the opinion that we can be providing more. And then when Vladimir Putin is continuing to level a death and destruction, and you know this, what he did to Mariupol, he can do in other parts of the country. And that's a sign that that is the Russians afraid of us. We have an important role in the world, but it requires our policymakers and elected officials to communicate that role to the public. The public understands how we're connected to Ukraine and Russia right now because of the price of filling up their cars and the price of food increasing because of this conflict. So it's exceptionally acute right now, but we always got to constantly be making the case of why this matters, why our activities in the other parts of the world matters back here at home. So how would you kind of grade the administration on Ukraine with regard to your view of how we should conduct foreign policy? I mean, it sounds, it sounds, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you think they're doing pretty well, but you'd like them to do, to do a little bit more. I would maybe say, look, C plus, B minus, B. We always want to talk about escalation. If we do something, this is going to escalate the conflict. And, you know, in 2015, when there was debates about whether we should be sending javelins to Ukraine to help defend against the Russians, there was a debate, well, that's going to escalate and cause the Russians to do more. At the beginning of this year, there was debates about if we do economic sanctions now, that's going to cause them to invade Ukraine. We got that wrong. But trying to understand second, third, fourth, and fifth order of effects, I think is incredibly difficult. And so for me, it's about first principles. And the first principle in my case in this, in this situation is how do you prevent 
the massacre of innocent people. And then also we need to be prepared that if we, when we do provide more support to deal with the Russian response. I don't know if 20 Polish MiGs will change the tide of the conflict, but let's give them to the Ukrainians and figure this out. Putin's having a hard enough time in, in Ukraine dealing with just the Ukrainians. He's not going to want to increase efforts to have the Poles get involved, who has a larger military and, and just as sophisticated, if not more sophisticated, than the Ukrainians. They don't want to see French fighters um, flying over, over Ukraine. So I think Putin knows that escalation will lead to you know, ultimately his downfall in Ukraine. And my concern is the longer this conflict goes on, it benefits Russia because the, our Eastern European allies are going to be feeling the pressures of a community living under the threat of war. A, the closer you are to Russia, the more sanctions and secondary sanctions impact you. And then the growing humanitarian crisis of Ukrainians in these countries. I think it was last month, Warsaw said their, their population increased 14%. Imagine if D.C. or Austin, Texas, you know, their, their population increased 14% in a month, the pressures that put. And the more pressures you put on those governments, the more pressures you're going to see in the Western alliance, and then you're going to see a lack of support from the Ukrainians. So is a, a diplomatic solution, are we closer to that? I don't think there's anything the Ukrainians are willing to offer that the Russians will be able to accept. And so can we be giving more heavy weaponry to the Ukrainians in order to push the Russians out of the country? That's where I think our policy should be. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Will, the last section of your book is focused on technology. It's really all about China and the fight over the technologies of the future, as well as the important issue of cyber. What do you want folks to walk away with from that section? Look, I, the reason I wrote it is, is to, to recognize that this is not about America becoming our best selves. We have to be our best selves because we're in a competition with the Chinese government. And the Chinese government is trying to surpass the United States of America as a global superpower. And they're doing this by being the global leader in a number of advanced technologies, 5G, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, hypersonics, things in biotech space. There's about 12, 14 of these kinds of, of, these kinds of technologies. And in order for us to compete 
we need to make sure that the public sector and the private sector are working together and we're working with our allies on keeping American global leadership in these technologies. Vladimir Putin said back in 2014, whoever masters AI masters the world. I think this is probably the only thing I agree with him on. And because these tools are going to be so powerful. So I'm, I'm on the board of a technology company and we just introduced a product where you can use text to create an image. You can say, uh, create an impressionist version of the Mona Lisa painting it as if it's a watercolor. And a couple seconds later, you get 20 different images. And it's powerful. This is not, it didn't scour the internet to find an image like this. It creates a new image pixel by pixel. Now, we've put some security restraints in there to prevent deep fakes of individuals and of people. But the Chinese government doesn't care about that. You want to talk about the meddling in our elections and how the Russians use social media in 2016 in order to try to influence election? Imagine if they have tools this powerful. And so that is why the future of conflict is not just in cyberspace, it's in the entire technology space. Um, quantum computing, why does this matter? The most immediate thing is quantum computing is going to be able to break all the encryption that we currently use to protect not just our communications, but all of our financial flows, whether it's in our bank, whether it's on the stock market. The ability of whoever reaches quantum supremacy to really impact global economies is pretty significant. You know, you and I are old enough to remember Y2K, yeah. right? And, and, yeah. and look, I, I was in college when Y2K happened. And I was going to drive from San Antonio to Dallas to see my girlfriend at the time. And I was kind of freaking out because it was like, Y2K is going to happen. Who knows if the world comes in? And nothing happened. Why? We spent a trillion dollars in four years working on that and being prepared for that situation. We need to be doing something similar for quantum computing and making sure that we have quantum resilient encryption in in everything of any significance that we use. And so... These are, these are complicated issues to think about. If we think social media is bad and social media was able that just sharing pictures, we're going to impact an ability, increases the likelihood that a young teenage girl cuts herself. Imagine these tools that are even more powerful uh, than that. And so we have to be at a point where we're able to take advantage of technology before it takes advantage of us. Now, there's also exciting. You know, these tools are going to allow us to de- already right now to detect cancers years in advance, which means a longer life. It's helping with the climate issue because it's allowing farmers to increase crop production with less water, with less land, with less energy. Uh, that's awesome. The ability to communicate with our, our, our loved ones the ability to help people that are, are blind to navigate and have freedom of movement. These are all some really exciting capabilities. And the technological explosion we're going to see in the next 47 years is going to make the last 47 years since the invention of the personal computer look like the last 47 years we were monkeys playing in the dirt with sticks. It's exciting, but we got to be ready for it. And it goes back to We need national leaders that understand these technologies. We need political parties that are willing to have debates on these topics to figure out how to best use this and how do we prepare for a society that has these kinds of powerful tools. So, Will, we have about a minute and a half left, and I want to come back to 
where we started the conversation. I had a chat about a year ago with former senior member of the Republican Party, a moderate like you. And, you know, he's not in politics anymore. And I asked him, you know, when are we going to see you back? And he said, Michael, this is this is not my politics, right? I, I couldn't get elected today. And then he said something that kind of blew me away. He said, look, I don't know if the phase we're going through here is going to be three to five years or it's going to be 25 to 30 years. Just react to that for me. Sure. I think it gets a little worse before it gets better, but I do think our best days are ahead of us. And and here's why. And, And I've learned this in the district that I represented, which was a true swing district, and I've seen it as I've crisscrossed the country. Way more unites us than divides us as a country. And when we talk about those issues that unite us, the ability to put food on our table, a roof over our head, and make sure the people we love are healthy, happy, and safe, when we talk about those issues, that's when we inspire people. And so I think this is the actual opportunity because 80% of the country is ready for something different. We don't have to continue on this path that we're on. You know, we learned this in the CIA, get off the X. The X is when something's going down. That's the last place you want to be where it's going down. And so I actually believe that silent majority, that middle of the country who wants things to work, they're going to start flexing their muscle and say, hey, we don't like the way things are going. The book is American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things Done. The author is Will Hurd. Will, thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me on. That was Will Hurd. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books.